remaining in our series on Jesus. Who is Jesus? Jesus is missional. He had a strong vision and a strong sense of mission everywhere he did, everywhere he went and in everything that he did. You notice his prayer as we read it in John 17, just full of missional words and focus and desire. I mean, just the the uh, emotion that you can sense and feel in that passage as he's speaking from his heart to the Father and speaking about us and speaking about those who were following him in that first century as well. And you just see his focus on mission. We want to learn from that today and we want to be missional just like Jesus. I want us to think about where we are in that regard. Where are we in being missional? Did we think about mission, the mission that we are on, that Jesus left us with in this life to make disciples? That was given to individuals. It remains clear that we are to embrace that mission today. Were we living on mission? You know, Paul said to Timothy as he was shaping him and mentoring him into the leader that God wanted him to be, He said, as for you, Timothy, always, that's a key word, isn't it? Always be sober-minded, always endure suffering, always do the work of an evangelist. What is that? An evangelist is someone who speaks the good news, the good news of Jesus, the gospel. Always do this, Timothy, no matter where you are or what you're doing. Always be sober-minded, be clear-headed, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and always, always fulfill your ministry. Don't ever forget these things, Timothy. Be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. The idea is, if you're sober-minded, if you're enduring suffering, and if you're doing the work of an evangelist, you will be fulfilling your mission, your ministry. It's good for us to remember those things today, isn't it? We see all of those things in Jesus. That's why the apostle was pouring them into Timothy. I love what David Livingston said. God had only one son, and he was a missionary. John Wesley said, I want the whole Christ for my Savior, the whole Bible for my book, the whole church for my fellowship, and the whole world for my mission field. Lee Strobel put it this way, I've seen far too many Christians who are more than willing to travel halfway around the world to do volunteer for a week in an orphanage, but who cannot bring themselves to take the personal risk of sharing Jesus with the co-worker who sits day after day in the cubicle right next to them. And Adoniram Judson put it this way so that we all know and understand that No matter where we are in life, we're still to be missional. Adoniram Judson said, the motto of every missionary, whether preacher, printer, I love that because it reminds me of the Shermans in Norway. If you miss their story, make sure you talk to them. Printer or schoolmaster, the motto ought to be devoted for life. We don't retire from serving Jesus. We may transition in our lives, but our focus is still on serving the Lord. 
Our own Pastor Charlie serves as an example of that to us this morning as he transitions. What is he going to do? Well, we all know he's not going to sit at home, right? He's not going to sit at home. He's going to serve Jesus and serve his church. And that's an example for all of us today. So who is Jesus? Who is missional Jesus, if we can put it that way today? Let's, let's look at some things. We, we want to begin with a verse like Matthew 9, 36, where it says, when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were weary and worn out like sheep without a shepherd. And what I want to say by introduction this morning is that often, maybe Maybe all the time, but, but, but most of the time for sure, if we're going to stay on mission and if we're going to be motivated by a clear vision of, of how God views the world and our place in that, it usually has a lot to do with perspective, how we see things, how we respond to things. Notice the perspective that Jesus has in Matthew 9 that allowed him to be missional, that allowed him to be motivated by the vision of his Father. He saw the crowds, and he was faced with an opportunity to develop a perspective, to have a response to the crowds. How do you respond to the crowds? They are all around you. What is your perspective of them? When you see these who make up the crowds, what do you see? Wow. In the present day, our perspective and what we see as individuals in the crowd may need to be tweaked a little bit because we are all feeling this pressure and this tension to fit everybody inside of a box and put a label on everybody. And usually those things are very temporal things, little or no eternal value whatsoever. They serve a temporal purpose. And I just want to encourage you, don't fall into that trap. If you fall into that trap, you're going to put labels on people and you're going to form uh, designations and even separations based on a temporal grid. And I'm just asking you to see the people in the crowds this morning with the perspective of Jesus. What was his response regardless of who they were, regardless of their ethnicity? We could say today political affiliation or position on anything. Well, how did Jesus see them? He felt compassion for them. Can we develop that? Can we truly feel compassion for those who are diametrically opposed to what we stand for? I hope so, because if we can't, we will never make disciples out of this world right now. You know that, and I know that. We are living in the muck of this world that is so opposed to Jesus and so opposed to God and so opposed to everything that we stand for as a faith community. If we can't see past that and feel compassion for them, we don't have a chance of being missional. We will never get there. So much of this rests on our perspective. Let us embrace the perspective of Jesus he saw beyond the labels and, and beyond the designations and beyond all the surface junk. And he had compassion on them. Why? Because he saw their real need. The real need of our culture is not that you would change their minds politically. It's not the real need of the culture. The real need of the culture is not that you would change someone's mind about abortion. Now, we're going to stand where we stand and we're going to call it murder and we're just going to stand there right? We stand there. That's what it is. 
And, and with all the other hot-button issues today, we, we take a biblical stand. But the real need of those in these areas who don't know Jesus is that they would know Jesus. They're weary and worn out. They're like sheep without a shepherd. They need Jesus. Then they can change their mind about things. Then they can see clearly from the perspective of God and Jesus about world issues and positions that should be taken based on biblical apologetic. But we cannot get the cart before the horse. We'll never be missional. We'll never make it past Matthew 9. So, Jesus showing us these things. What do you say in Luke 4? The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed. There is his missional way of thinking, full of what God the Father intended for him to do. So what do we see as key elements in Jesus living out his missional life? Well, first of all, we're going to see a strong presence of the sovereignty of the Father. From the very beginning, here it is, God's sovereignty. What do I mean by that? Well, let's look at a verse like Galatians 4.4. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. The key phrase there is the very first one in this verse. When the time came to completion. When it was the right time. The appointed time. The, the sovereignly determined time by the Father. Jesus came. Everything had been put into place that God wanted to be in place. And then Jesus comes on the scene and powerfully demonstrates mission. But only at the right time. The sovereignty of the Father. We have to trust his sovereignty too. We have to rest in his sovereignty or we will lose sight of our mission and we will be distracted. Some of us today are struggling with things that have to do with the sovereignty of God. We've allowed things that God has allowed in our life to cause different, let's just say, unbiblical or even unchristian reactions or responses to life. I'll give you an example. And I'm not singling anyone out. I'm using it in a general way. But if we receive the news that God has allowed us to become ill, maybe terminally ill, he's allowed it, it's happened. We didn't choose it, didn't cause it, God allowed it into our life. And so we have this heavy presence of illness in our body, in our mind. It, it certainly affects us in, in dramatic ways, probably like nothing else has ever affected us in our life. What are we going to do with that? What are we going to do with that difficult thing? Yesterday, uh, we received news that a lady who had been a part of our ministry in central Illinois, in fact, her, one of her sons grew up under my ministry there. His name is Seth, and her name is Betty. Her husband's name is Russ. She had been ill, and yesterday she went to see Jesus. And to see the response of the family and the focus that they wanted to have on the gifts that God had given through her to others and to the church was amazing. 
And a lot of this was being done on social media. It was just a wonderful encouragement. But how do you do something like that? Oh, it doesn't mean they don't hurt and that they're not sorrowing. Of course they do, and of course they are. But they're embracing and accepting what God allowed. Very difficult. But yet still seeing a sense of mission and vision through it because they can focus on the sovereignty of God. Jesus does that to the end, doesn't he? In fact, he lives out this. A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps, right? We bump into that all the time. We're supposed to plan. We're supposed to be good stewards of our time and resources and opportunity. But does God ever mess with your plans? He does all the time, right? And he should have the right to do that. And we should embrace that when the unexpected happens, even if it's painful. We need to embrace the sovereignty of the Father and remain missional. Jesus does that flawlessly. As he does that, you also see a strong, consistent presence of prayer, don't you? We read his prayer in John 17. Pastor Charlie read that for us today. Full of missional language. But nonetheless, it's a prayer. It wasn't a sermon. It was a prayer. Do we pray missionally? Do we pray at all? How much time? And there's no magical time. There's no quota you have to fill. But I think it's a question that deserves an answer this morning. How much time did we pray this past week? I mean, really pray. And meals don't count, okay? How much time did we really pray? And fellowship with God and, and, and communicate with God. Paul was a man of prayer. And we know the mighty warrior of the faith that he was. Jesus, part of the Godhead, prayed. What makes us think that we could go a day without praying? Look at Luke chapter 5 with me. Jesus is said of him, yet he often withdrew to deserted places and prayed. Wow, what a testimony. Give me a deserted place. <laughs> Find me one, right? I need to go there. Let's pray. Let's pray. Jesus did that as the Son of God. In Luke 11, he was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. Here Jesus is wanting to pray and spend time with the Father, and he embraces in this passage an opportunity to be missional, right? Teach us to pray. Show us how to pray, Jesus. There he is, jumping right in, even in his own prayer time, being missional to teach others. He was a man of prayer. Matthew chapter 9 he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. So here he is through prayer, being missional and encouraging and challenging other people to pray for what many have called the most forgotten prayer requests in the Bible. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. When's the last time we prayed that? Jesus in his mission was full of prayer himself, but he also encouraged others to do the same. We see the theme continue in the New Testament. Paul saying in Colossians at the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the message to speak the mystery of the Messiah for which I am in prison. 
missional praying. Jesus, Jesus modeled it. Jesus encouraged it. And Jesus passed it on to the apostles who have in turn passed it on to us. I've challenged you with this before, but what really is the substance of your prayer life? What is it? Is it missional at all? Don't take this the wrong way because I think that there is a place for this kind of praying, but most Christians never get beyond health needs in their prayers. They focus solely on that. Pray for sister so-and-so. She's having a bunion, you know, taken from her foot. Let's, let's pray for her. So-and-so has this problem and this disease and this sickness. And while praying for the sick is certainly inappropriate, it's not the only thing that we should be praying for. Our prayer should be full of mission and vision to embrace why we are here to bring glory to our Father. And if we can never get past the physical, temporal needs that people have or that we have, we're not going to be very missional in our praying I'm not saying neglect it. I'm saying only see it as a part of a robust prayer life. How about Ephesians 6? Pray also for me, Paul says, that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. That's missional praying. That's what it looks like. That's what Paul begged for. You know, Paul prayed to God three times about something, didn't he? Right? God, remove this from me, remove this from me, remove this from me, give me an escape plan, what God say? Nope, not going to do it, but I am going to give you my grace because it's sufficient for you, Paul. It's sufficient for you that in your weakness, I will show my strength and bring glory to myself among the nations because everywhere you go and everything you do, you're going to have to overcome this thorn in the flesh and I'm going to give you the grace to do it. Paul moves on from that, doesn't he? That temporal need, whatever it was. There's some speculation here. He didn't ask others to join him in prayer for that thorn in the flesh to be removed, but he does ask other people to join him in prayer for mission. For mission. Because that's what's really eternally valuable. Paul is our example. And I'm not saying, don't misunderstand, I'm not saying to never ask others to pray for your physical needs. Of course, but again, it's only a part of a robust prayer life. Only a part. Don't make it the main thing and miss out on following Jesus. Jesus also follows the Holy Spirit's leading and depends on his power in his mission. Isaiah chapter 11. Then a shoot will grow up from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears. Holy Spirit anointed, driven, and led and Jesus depends on this spirit as he lives and ministers on this earth, the spirit of God. We're going to spend several weeks, months actually, 
on the topic of the Holy Spirit. We're going to just dig. In fact, it's going to take us from when we start it through the end of this year, and it's going to open up next year. Okay, so just so you know, that's what's coming, the Holy Spirit. Somebody wrote a book once, The Holy Spirit, God's Shy Presence on Earth. Well, we're just, I don't believe in that. I don't think it is God's shy. We may treat it like it is, but I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit is alive and well and working and moving and wanting to lead us and guide us and illumine us in the scriptures. And we're going to study that. He wants to live through us and manifest all kinds of things. And we're going to talk about those things biblically. Jesus lives it out. How about Acts chapter 10? You know the events that took place throughout Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were under the tyranny of the devil because God was with him. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 32, and John testified, I watched the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and he rested on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 3, after Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And there came a voice from heaven, this is my beloved Son, I take delight in him. Luke chapter 4, Jesus returned from Jordan full of the Holy Spirit and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. Don't miss that. You follow the leading of the Spirit, you're going to go to some difficult places. In this case, it was the temptation of Jesus. The Spirit led him there. Now, God didn't tempt him with evil. We know God doesn't tempt any man with evil, but God allowed Satan to tempt him, and the Spirit led him to the place of temptation. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was hungry. Let's just put it this way. There is nothing, not even the place or the power of temptation in your life that is bigger than God. He's with you. He gives you the power through the Spirit to overcome, and He even allows you to be led to that point so that you can grow. But it's not meant for your destruction, and there's nothing in that event that is outside of the power and control of a sovereign God, not even the worst temptation to sin. And Jesus flawlessly and perfectly goes through that time and gives us a wonderful example. Number four, we see Jesus seeing really anyone who was in need as an opportunity to do good and to serve. We find that in Philippians 2, of course, but we also find it in a narrative that I want to take time to read in Luke chapter 10, because as Jesus is teaching this, his life backs this up. You know that as you've studied the life of Jesus, but let's begin in Luke 10 and begin in verse 25. Just then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He asked him. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, he told him. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus took up the question and said, 
A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, on his journey, came up to him. And when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus told him, Go and do the same. See, even in a difficult situation where he was being tested. Jesus still graciously, kindly, and pointedly teaches and stays on mission. He didn't get into an argument. He taught the man. He told a story, which is a wonderful, wonderful illustration of a, how a good teacher will, will use those types of things to communicate profound, eternal truth on mission, not drug into a debate. Simply tells a story that can't be argued and he shows us, being on mission, that anyone in need is really our neighbor, an opportunity to serve and to do well. As we draw our study to a conclusion, we come to the fifth and final thing before some application. Jesus, in all of these things, was consistently inviting others to believe. Even the humanitarian things that he did, right? The healing, the feeding, all that stuff was still for a purpose, not just to meet people's temporal needs. He was concerned about their eternal need. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? <laughs> Personal evangelism. A little confrontational too, isn't it? He just came right out with it. Do you believe this? Why? Why was he so bold and courageous to, to ask that question? Because he keeping his eyes on mission. He was keeping his eyes on the real need of this one, this lady. It wasn't temporal. It was eternal. And while he was going to meet temporal needs, he drove down deep on eternal needs. And he invited others to believe. I want you to think about the answer to this question. Very simple. When did you last invite someone to believe. That really is the first step in making a disciple, isn't it? It is. Non-believers cannot be disciples. You have to be a believer to be a disciple. You have to be a believer to grow in your walk with Jesus. If you don't have a walk with Jesus, that is what you need first. There's no such thing for san of sanctification for unbelievers. Growth comes after life. Have we invited anyone in the recent past to believe? If not, what keeps us from doing that? What keeps us from asking the question like Jesus did, do you believe this? Do you believe the truth of the gospel that Jesus died for your sins? Do you believe this? Will you accept the free gift of salvation? Do you believe this? As we close today, I just want to share with you some very practical things these are things that I cannot give you necessarily a chapter and verse, but I want you to think about these things 
how to tell if a church has lost its way when it comes to mission. Just think them through with me. I won't spend a lot of time here, just a few minutes. How about this one? The focus in a church is on people and programs instead of Jesus. I think that's a telltale sign that a church has lost its way missionally. We're focused on people and programs. We want to get as many people as possible. Then we want to keep all of those people happy at any cost. And then we're going to have all kinds of programs, but no focus on Jesus and what he wants. Think about that. Think about that. Secondly, the worship is more about what people like than celebrating God's mission. It's more about what people like than celebrating God's mission. Missions would be losing its place of rightful prominence. That is the claim to continuance for the church. Missions, local and global missions, right? Investing in making disciples. We are all to be missionaries. We have a program here. It's a missions program, and we're thankful for that. It's wonderfully led and executed. Beyond that, though, all of us are supposed to be on mission making disciples. If missions, whether it's our program or any piece of our individual involvement, is not prominent, what in the world are we doing? Why are we here? And I'm not saying we're not giving it a rightful prominence. I'm saying if we ever do get to the point where it's not emphasized, we're losing our mission. Leadership rarely mentions the lost around the world. Think about that. Think of what a church would be if leaders didn't talk about making disciples and, and being on mission to evangelize and, and disciple people. New people are not welcomed. New people. Let me just say something to, to the 830 uh, attendees today. I want to compliment you with this. It's been a few weeks ago now, maybe four, could be even more than that actually. A young couple um, who aren't even married, they're dating, they're actually college students from Grand Valley State University, happened to come into one of our 830 gatherings. And uh, they came over to the, to the table and, and talked with me after the gathering and, and uh, presented them with the gifts and we talked for a little bit. And they just had to tell me. In fact, I could tell they were, they were eager to let me know that their experience with us was wonderful. And the thing they said, they said, you know, we've been visiting churches around. We've been visiting churches around. And this one has made us feel the most welcome. You did that. 830, you did that. Two young kids from college coming in to this service felt more welcome than anywhere else they had ever been. That's wonderful. So I'm going to say to you today, keep that up. I don't know what you did. I asked them a little bit about, well, what was your experience? And it was just the number of people that talked to them. I have no idea what you said, but whatever it is, keep doing that. That's what we want to do. Missional, embracing new people and trying to make as many disciples as we possibly can, trying to encourage as many people as we possibly can in their walk with Jesus. But if they're not welcomed here, we won't have an opportunity to make disciples, will we? Keep it up. That was a blessing. 
Change is rejected, not because it's biblically invalid, but because it's not comfortable. Our mission, if we're going to remain missional, it will involve uncomfortable changes. It will, because we have to grow. We have to move forward. And finally, the persecuted church would rarely be mentioned in a church that wasn't on mission. When we're ever disconnected from a part of who we are around the world, we're losing ground. We need to regain that if that's the case. I I appreciate all those who have over the last couple of years brought this kind of thing to our attention. And my encouragement is let's just continue to do that. Let's not lose sight of praying. You know, that's a prayer request too, isn't it? From the Bible, that could also be one of the more forgotten prayer requests, like the one in Matthew. We need to pray for our brothers and sisters who are in bonds, the scripture says. The persecuted church needs to be prayed for. That's part of our mission. It's part of our mission. Let's not forget it. Well, that brings us to a close this morning of who is Jesus. He is missional and let us be the same. Can we just bow for a moment or two and and rejoice and pray together? Father, thank you for Jesus and his mission. And thank you for the mission centuries old that has passed on to us. Help us to embrace it, live it out, execute it like Jesus. In the strong and powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.